Hello. My day job involves representing health leaders, but I don't have any scientific, let alone medical training. So when it was suggested that we feature on Bridges to the Future, a book about cells, biological cells, cells in our body, I, I felt a mixture of excitement and trepidation. And sure enough, as I read the book, there were times when once again I deeply regretted my failure to take science seriously at school. But other times, when the story of the cell and the scientists who helped us understand what it is and what it does, well, it was, even for me as a layperson, intriguing, exhilarating. Today, I'll take you on that journey of discovery with the book's author. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. So I'm delighted to be joined by Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is the author of The Song of the Cell, An Exploration of Medicine and the New Human. Siddhartha is a cancer physician and researcher, as well as being a globally renowned prize-winning science writer. Siddhartha, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'll start with a question we ask everybody. And in your case, it might seem really obvious because this is the kind of book you write and the kind of book you're famous for writing. But nevertheless, why did you choose The Cell as the next thing to write about? Well, the two previous books, the first book was The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer, and it was about cancer. The second book was about genetics and genomics, the discovery of the, of the gene and the remarkable progress on genetics. And it felt natural in some ways to then climb the ladder, as it were, of life. The gene is a code, but without a cell, that code is lifeless. Genes are encoded by DNA, but DNA is a molecule. It's a lifeless molecule. It's an inert molecule. A cell enlivens the gene. In some ways, you could say that genes or DNA the genome is a score, and the cell is the musician that brings that score to life. The score itself is just a written code. And so it felt as if time was due to give the cell its due. That was one reason. And by the way, that's one reason why the book is called The Song of the Cell. The cell sings out, like a musician might, the score of DNA and the genome. But the other reason is, I think, just as interesting and that's that, you know, if you think about the three pillars of biological and medical sciences, biological and medical sciences have, you know, for a long time, biologists were thought of as sort of, you know, the lesser scientists. We were the people who would bring the physicists their coffee. But it turns out that biology has established its three pillars. The first pillar is evolution. Darwin and all the people who came after him really put that pillar in place. The second pillar is, is universality of genetics, the gene code that crosses animal and plant kingdoms. But the third code is cell theory, or the third pillar, I should say, is cell theory. And although a thousand books have been written about evolution and a thousand books have been written about the gene, including mine, there were very few books on cell biology, on the history and on the future, and how important it is to understand the cell as the unit that really enlivens both evolution and genetics. It was the, I shouldn't say the missing pillar, it was the pillar that had been given the least attention to. And so therefore I thought that, you know, in every way I, I thought 
you know, if you don't understand cells, you can't understand life. And so henceforth, this book on the cell. Yeah, and I'm very glad you did write it. It's a fantastic read. But when you talk about the book, or indeed, I guess, as a physician, when you talk to people about their conditions, what is it that the layperson doesn't get about cells? What is the most common kind of misconception in terms of people's kind of conceptual grasp of cells, do you find? I think the most common misconception that people have about cells is that they don't understand how extraordinarily diverse cells are. You know, we have a kind of almost like a, a tinker toy model, a childhood model of a cell that we've picked up somehow, you know, during sort of the biology A-levels or somewhere in high school. And that tinker toy model, you know, shows a cell. It's a round thing with things inside it, mitochondria and, you know, the nucleus and so forth. But that's just a model cell. And in fact, there are very few cells that actually look like that. Cells are extraordinarily diverse. They can be long, they can be short. They you know, think about the difference between a neuron and a T-cell. You know, a neuron can be centimeters long, sometimes meters long. A T-cell is completely different looking. They look almost like ectoplasmic blobs moving through the, through the body. A red cell looks like a round cushion with a punched out middle. And they, they acquire extraordinarily different functions. And so one misconception is how a cell can have these very diverse cells can have very distinct commonalities. All of them have membranes. Most of them have mitochondria. Most of them have, you know, very, very organized skeletons inside them made out of proteins. And yet they can assume incredibly different forms and functions. And it's these forms and functions that are the basis of everything. Normal physiology on one hand, everything that we do, we that you and I do, this conversation everything, your heart beating, your cells in the brain firing, your neurons working, your blood working. And they also, as I point out in the book, their dysfunction is the core dysfunction in all diseases, regardless of where that disease originates. The disease could originate in a malfunctioning gene. It could originate in something in the environment. It could originate in a situation. But ultimately, it has to go through a cell. So I think those are all misconceptions that people have about cells, their diversity, the diversity of their functions and their centrality in both normalcy and disease. I want to come back to a couple of those ideas in a moment, Siddhartha. But but before we do, quite a lot of the book is about the history of our scientific understanding of the cell. And I thought there were a couple of interesting themes there that struck me, one of which you refer to explicitly, another which is, I guess, kind of implicit. So the first is the way that science moves in kind of these accelerated periods of discovery, and then very little happens for a long time. And then you get another accelerated period. And I thought that was really interesting. It'd be great to hear more about that. And then in a way, slightly related to that, it's just the sheer luck that is involved in the fact that some scientists discovered things, but it was at the wrong time. There was nobody ready to listen. And and almost in some cases, they were tragically disillusioned by the fact they couldn't get the ideas across. But had they had the same idea 20, 30, 50 years later, they would have been hailed as great innovators. So the kind of lumpy nature of scientific history and the degree that 
luck is involved and whether or not you get a Nobel Prize or you end up in an asylum feeling rejected by everybody. <laughs> that really hit me. <laughs> well, I think that it's actually true for for all creative disciplines. My wife is an artist and I see this in the arts as well. I mean, you know, someone might be hailed for a particular kind of creative output. And if that person existed 50 years ago, they'd be called, you know, Basquiat and Picasso would be called grotesque madmen. If they were painting in the 16th century, they would be, you know, called crazy and put into asylums for trying to sell their paintings. So I think this is a common thread in creativity. It's the risk you take for being creative. It's the risk that you take for being in a creative profession. I mean, there's a little bit more to that, which is that in many of these sort of creative professions, science especially, you're profoundly dependent on technology and diverse forms of technology. You're dependent on on technology that is enabling. So in the case of cell biology, of course, you know, the first piece of that technology is the microscope. Without a microscope, you can't see cells. And you can claim, as people did before the invention of the microscope, you could claim that there were cells abstractly. But if you couldn't see them, it was very hard to know what they were made of or how they looked. And so a lot of these gaps that you point out are gaps in which there's an abstract idea that's been launched, but it somehow or the other won't stick because the next piece of technology or the next crucial insight is missing. And it's not until that next piece of technology or insight really comes about and starts its luminous journey that you have this lump. And that's a risk that everyone in every creative profession is taking, I would say, all the time. Without that risk, you wouldn't be a creative person. And there's also, there isn't there, fashion and dogma in science as well. You know, ideas can simply be unfashionable and then come back into fashion. There can be orthodoxies which are unchallengeable at any particular point. And that's why you get these kind of paradigm shifts when an orthodoxy is suddenly shattered, refuted. Exactly. I mean, for, you know, there were so many orthodoxies in the history of cell biology. I mean, for one, I mean, I talk about some of them. They were so fundamental. I mean, one orthodoxy was how cells are born. For a long time, several very prominent scientists believed that there was something very special, a vital fluid out of which cells came in a crystal form. They were like crystals forming inside the fluid, just like, you know, crystals of salt form inside water. Until someone, and finally, of course, most importantly, Rudolf Virchow, the pathologist, made the argument that all cells come from cells. There's no other way. The only way to birth a cell is from another cell, the division of a prior cell. And again, to us, sitting in the 2022, that sounds like, hardly a radical idea, but it was deeply radical in its time. And in fact, if you really think about it, that idea, you know, has resonances that go all the way throughout the entire biological sciences. I'll give you two examples of how just that simple statement, all cells come from cells, omnicellular, cellular, becomes the locus of extraordinary investigation. So just to give you just two examples, One is that it's in the 1980s, 1970s and 1980s, that people studying cancer realized that if all cells come from cells, then a cancer cell must have come from a normal cell. And therefore, something must have happened to that normal cell, whatever it might be. We now know what it is. The fact that the normal cells get either mutations or infected by a virus or somehow its genetic apparatus is disrupted. 
such that it becomes a cancer cell. But that launches the field of molecular cancer biology or molecular oncology. I'll give you one more example. Again, if you say all cells come from cells, you have to say, well, if that's the case, then the entire human animal or any animal or for that matter, any plant must have come from a single cell. I mean, that first cell that was fertilized. And that gives rise to the entire field of embryology and development. How on earth could that one cell that looks like a blob create you and me, you know, with fingers and toes and, and a nose and eyes and a heart, which only sits for the most part in most people on the left side and the liver. And, you know, you all of a sudden have this massive conundrum that arises from that simple single statement. But it's not until you make these breakthroughs against orthodoxy that you start really becoming a scientist or really exploring science in the full. Yeah, there were so many times in the book where I was excited by what I was learning, but there were two particular moments of exhilaration for me. And one was, there's a part in the book where you kind of ask us to imagine walking through a cell, taking a journey through a cell. And it was in that part that the the incredible complexity and dynamism of cells was opened up. And you've talked a, a bit about that, but it's almost worth going back to because it is it is a world within a world uh, that is taking place at this microscopic level within our, our bodies. And then And then the other part that I found exhilarating and fascinating was the capacity of cells to evolve, to evolve themselves, which is, of course, what you've just been talking about. That is the thing that was so hard for scientists to understand before they started to understand it. The complexity and the dynamism, they are slightly beyond human imagination. Yes, I mean, I I think the complexity is certainly something that people underestimate. A lot of it has to do with the microanatomy or the architecture of the cell. Cells are not blobs. They are internally, and this is, this is this journey that we take into the cell. You know, I was very reminded of the sci-fi novel, The Journey to the Center of the Earth, which was eventually made into a film that I watched as a child. And, and, you know, you go through the magma and the, you know, the, the crust. And, and I was also reminded about sort of what it would be like to board and I use this analogy explicitly. What if we were on a lunar mission and all of a sudden we found floating next to us an alien spacecraft from another civilization and we, we boarded that spacecraft? It's a little bit like that for someone who's not a cell biologist to imagine the cell as a spaceship and board the spaceship. And all of a sudden you'd be looking around and, and finding things and architecture inside an, an incredibly complex architecture. They, you know, You'd find the boiler room, as it were, where all the energy is generated in the cell. That's the mitochondria. And in fact, even if you were to go inside the boiler room, as you would in the spaceship, you'd find an incredible architecture. And some of it might be familiar to you. Some of it is not even familiar to scientists. We don't know why things are organized the way they are. So there's a chill or an excitement, something spine-tingling about sort of discovering these organelles, as they're called, the mitochondria, the endoplasmic reticulum, or the ER, as it's called, the Golgi complex, the nucleus, you know, the skeleton that surrounds all of this, the cytoskeleton, the cell skeleton. And so I sort of take people on this journey inside the cell. And it was actually, the, the to some extent, the funnest part of the book to write, because it felt sort of like that moment in Star Wars when they board the mothership. And, you know, they're going all around finding hatches and portals and boiler rooms and 
waste disposal sections. And it's all alien and foreign to them, but they understand that there's a function to all of this. So that's the boarding of the cell that I, I love it that you found it so exhilarating. And then the other part, which is, you know, the, the incredible complexity of it all, the evolutionary aspect. Yeah, the journey from single-celled organisms to multicellularity, that seems almost magical. And what's astonishing about that is that, you know, people, for the longest time, people thought that it was that transition from single-cellular organisms to multicellular organisms was a was an impossible transition. It took, it must have taken evolution, you know, billions of years to make that transition because single cell organisms are extraordinarily successful. And people used to think it was a kind of accident, didn't they? That it was, as it were, some kind of inexplicable one-off accident that must have occurred. And they didn't realize it was intrinsic to what cells are capable of. That's right. And also, and also what they did realize that it, it not only was not an accident, but in fact, there's an evolutionary drive. The drive is to create multicellular organisms. And we're still trying to figure out why, what the reason for that drive is. I mean, there are theories about the fact that they evolved to escape predators. But that drive is something that's very, very crucial and very important in the whole history. And Siddhartha, I remember reading a book many, many years ago. I can't remember its title, but it was a book about how we may have reached the limits of scientific discovery in certain ways. And I Remember one of the examples was that in order to to be able to observe the particle below the Higgs boson in size, we would need an accelerator the size of the solar system. What are the limits, do you think, to our knowledge about the cell? I'm going to come on in a moment to the impact of the cell on medicine, but but in terms of what we can understand about what's going on when it gets down to the tiniest level, do you think there is any limit to what humans can understand about cells? I think we're far from that limit. I think there's lots and lots of things to be still discovered, things that we don't understand. I mean, in fact, yesterday we performed an experiment in the lab that doesn't make sense until you begin to think about the cell in a somewhat different way. I'm not going to go through the details of the experiment, but it was a completely unrelated experiment. We were working on making new kinds of proteins, and we suddenly realized that maybe the reason that that project wasn't working the way it was supposed to work was because we had been missing something fundamental about the way cells make proteins. Now, the way cells make proteins is, is was something that was, you know, worked on 60 odd years ago. And yet we're still, there's a still frontiers that we're, we're, we're still exploring and developing that are new and interesting. I mean, again, the idea that we used to think that cellular reactions occurred as if, you know, the, the kinds of reactions that happen in beakers. But in fact, it turns out that there's more and more evidence that cellular reactions, particular cellular reactions, occur in very specialized places in the cell, which may not be visible just using gross anatomy or microscopy. In fact, people have likened these places to, you know, you remember the lava lamps and how they have little blobs inside them? These blobs are invisible to standard microscopy. But in fact, these blobs are where these reactions are concentrated, almost as if, you know, you're inside a lava lamp. So that's something completely new. We didn't know about it 10 years ago. No one had suspected that the inside of the cell had this kind of lava lamp-like configuration. But that turns out to be more and more true. And so there's a lot, lot more to be discovered in cell biology. We're not at the Higgs boson limit. Yeah, I, I guess I don't want to go beyond my limited scientific knowledge, but I guess I suppose 
is an extent to which what happens in cells has an emergent quality in that it doesn't matter how much we know, we won't ever be able to entirely predict what will happen because of this kind of, as you say, the thing about a lava lamp is you you can't predict what the next blob is going to look like. It has that kind of, even though you know everything that's in the lamp, even though you know all the all the components of it, still you can't predict how the liquids are going to form the next time the, the bubble goes to the top or to the bottom. Do you think there's an emergent quality to cells? That's why I guess what I'm talking about in terms of the limits of our knowledge. Well, I think there's certainly emergent qualities in all of science, and cell biology is true. It's important to make a distinction between predictable emergent qualities and unpredictable emergent qualities. Both can be true. There are predictable emergent qualities in the cell that we don't know about, but but can be known. They're knowable. And again, think about sort of the shape of clouds versus predicting the weather. You know, you can predict the weather without knowing the exact shapes of clouds. And to some extent, you know, that's sort of where we are. There are predictable qualities, emergent qualities about the cell that we don't know about because we just haven't looked that deeply. And there'll be some qualities which, like the shape of clouds, will be unpredictable. And then you come to the question, and, and I know you were, you were getting to it anyway, to, to the question of medicine, which ones of these predictable emergent qualities have an impact on medicine and which one? You know, do we really need to know the shape of each cloud to predict the weather? No. Does it help to know the shape of each cloud? Maybe. And so, you know, that's how science works. You know, we try to understand in the transition between science and medicine, we try to understand if there are emergent qualities we try to understand the predictable ones that have impact. And we try to, the other ones we leave alone, maybe in the future, they will have impact. Maybe it'll be important 20 years from now to know the shape of clouds or the shape of the blob in the lava lamp. But for now, it doesn't seem to be important. But there are certainly predictable emergent qualities in the cell that are knowable and have importance in how we imagine sort of understanding and manipulating cells. And that's a big part of the story here. And one of the reasons why the book is so exciting is that you write the book in a sense as a kind of dialectic between what is being discovered in the laboratory, the way that the pure science is in a sense developing, but also the way in which this is applied. And it's a wonderful interaction because sometimes it is through the solving of concrete problems like infertility that science makes leaps forward and sometimes it's because the science makes a leap forward that doctors are able to to think about well let's try that out and see if that works that interaction between the laboratory and the hospital the consulting room is 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 a really big part of the story isn't it absolutely and there are two different kinds of minds at work when we talk about making of medicines or creating cellular medicines there's one kind of mind that explores the basic sciences of cells and as what you call the emergent properties from those basic sciences, and really a separate kind of mind that takes those inputs, that takes those insights, and converts them into medicines. And there's an overlap between them, but they're they're really different kinds of ways of thinking. And you talk towards the end of the book about the ethical dilemmas that are thrown up particularly by processes such as gene editing, enormous potential in terms of, for example, inherited diseases, but also the danger of us entering into a kind of attempt to achieve perfection in human beings. And you talk about some of the kind of issues that are involved there. I'd like you to talk about that, but I'm also interested in, will 
the focus of research in cellular biology? Will it enable us to to, to make progress in things that matter to everyday people? I, I suppose. You know, I was just talking the other day. I said, as I said at the beginning, I work for an organisation that works with the health service, and and our organisation that that regulates medicines was was just saying to some pharmaceutical companies, if only you would just invest and spend a bit more time working on the the most common problems, the, some of the humdrum issues that leave people unable to enjoy their lives or unable to work. Whereas it always seems to me that the the investment is going into the very kind of cutting edge stuff, which is, don't get me wrong, it's incredibly important. But is this technology as relevant to the everyday mass conditions that affect poorer people as it is to extending the lives of those in our richest parts of the world who've got cancer, for example? Well, I, th- I think it's a complicated question because it depends on where you draw the lines. I mean, in some ways, as I say, every medicine that we ever invent depends on on understanding the biology of a cell. Antibiotics involve understanding the biology of cells. HIV infection, why HIV only infects CD4 positive CT cells is a cellular question. You know, just moving on, why you get coronary disease uh, and then heart disease uh, is actually a cellular question. And so, so it depends on how you cut the pie. I mean, it, it seems as if, you know, putting in neural prosthetics lies far outside the humdrum or but very important questions in biology, but but solving why obesity exists, what hormone is secreted by what cell that causes a change in metabolism that ultimately leads to obesity seems to be a question of, of vital importance to everyone. And so these lines that people are drawing, I think are arbitrary. And I think, you know, deeper explorations of cell biology, not necessarily just technologies, but deeper explorations of cell biology, metabolism, infection, etc., have broad consequences all around the world. Yeah, and that's a point you make strongly that, in a sense, all medicine is cellular medicine, and it's becoming. And, and do you see cellular biology becoming a kind of common foundation now for innovation across all areas of medicine? Well, to some extent, it always was. I mean, I think we're just realizing it. Then you know, Verkhaus' statement that that all illness is, is cellular dysfunction was made in, you know, in the late 1800s. And ever since the birth of cell theory and cellular pathology, we've always known that, that illness, you know, whether it be infection, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, liver disease, you know, HIV infection, are all ultimately related to the way cells interact with each other and cells interact with viruses or microbes or the immune system and, and what it does to ourselves, to viruses. So, so, so I think, you know, you could call it a new realization, but in fact, it's always been, been the case. And then finally, this ethical question, Siddhartha, which you do discuss. My sense is that you don't think that ethical concerns should get in the way of us discovering more, partly for the reasons that you've described, which is that, that discoveries in one area can have all sorts of implications for other, other areas. But you do want us to keep our kind of ethical antennae twitching to be aware of the fact that there are going to be potentially some fairly major ethical issues raised in time oh they're already being raised and i talk about some of them but but remember that you know i make a very important distinction in this book between disease and desire disease is linked to suffering desire is linked to enhancement augmentation becoming taller becoming whatever you have it however you want to to change a human behavior without the question of suffering and, you know, people have different beliefs on this. Dr. Henry Marsh, who I respect enormously, 
wrote a lovely review of my book in, in the New Statesman last week, in which he makes the argument that, you know, we'll be fine, we'll be okay, that we can make these distinctions legally and, and morally, you know, except at the far edges, we can make these distinctions legally and morally with a great deal of feasibility. I'm less sanguine about it, and, and then there are people in the middle. But the idea that there will be questions raised about gene therapy, and remember, gene therapy is really cell therapy. If you put the wrong gene in the wrong cell in the wrong time, you don't get any gene therapy. You just get nonsense. So I think these questions will be raised and will continue to be raised. Right now, I think, they, you know, when people have broken the boundaries, and I give an example of, of a scientist who, who went way too far in China, the reaction has been swift and, and a quick shutdown. But that may not be the case the next time around. So there's a kind of what you call, you know, wiggling our antenna constantly and keeping abreast of the stewardship that we have of ourselves as humans, ourselves as compassionate humans, but also ourselves as humans who have a certain degree of intolerance to changing what humans are and will be and can be is important because I think those, those ideas are, are essential as we, as we move forward. Well, Siddhartha, thank you for writing the book and thank you for joining me on Bridges to the Future. It's been a fantastic conversation. Great. Thank you. The book is The Song of the Cell, in case anyone wants to remember it. And I thank you for having me on the podcast. I immensely enjoyed The Song of the Cell. But there were points in Siddhartha's book when I, I started to get lost. I, I simply lacked the basic scientific knowledge, maybe confidence to understand entirely what I was reading. So what is the point? of reading things you don't fully understand. I'd say this. Firstly, there's a kind of poetry to it, the words, the images, the metaphors. Second, I found that you, you kind of have to let your mind find a way of engaging, even if it isn't through the usual kind of mastery of ideas. Your mind will find a way of engaging with this material, finding a way of making it feel like it has meaning to you. And third, well, you know, it's only by trying that you get better. I'll never be an expert in cellular biology, but now I'm that little bit more likely to try to find out more. Indeed, if there was ever a book I was tempted to read twice, it's this one. In fact, maybe I will. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.